Welcome to episode 5 of Binging Bridgerton, a podcast series going episode by episode through everybody's favorite new historical romance. I'm Beth, and this morning I'm joined by my co-host Amrita. Good morning, Beth. And by one of our favorite people from Twitter, Sal. Sal, thank you so much for coming on to do this crazy show with us. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. In episode five, we are dealing with the fallout of everything that happened in episode four, uh, mainly Daphne and Simon's surprising decision to marry in haste. One of the people who is directly concerned is, of course, Prince Frederick, who is a complete mensch. Um, I mean, most jilted lovers in stories like this turn out to be, you know, at least a little bit huffy or a little unpleasant. But uh, the prince is actually a prince and he is delightful. He comes and he meets Daphne and he has no hard feelings and even puts in a good word for her with the queen who is not pleased. Also, the prince is still not asking my big question, which is, where's the necklace? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> justice for the necklace. Sal, were you as taken by the mystery of the necklace as I am? Like, I just, they set it down on the ledge and then we never see it again and I'm very upset. Oh my God, I, I was clearly thirsting for Simon too hard to like clock the disappearance of the necklace. <laughs> that was my priority while watching Bridgerton, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> There's no reason to lie about that on this show. That's a perfectly appropriate <laughs> priority. Sal, what is what are what are some of the plot points that stood out for you? I think um, the queen, like complicating the picture of the queen a little bit, adding some of the nuance to how we're supposed to see her. Because at first we see her as sort of this capricious, bored, you know, imperious figure, and then in I think in episode five is when we really get to see what her domestic life looks like because. You know, her husband is experiencing some sort of degenerative mental condition and he thinks she killed their child or is responsible for their child's absence <laughs> and is, you know, sort of lashing out against her. So, you know, you really get a sense of the pathos of the character that she's doing a lot of this stuff to amuse herself because she she's got this really sort of horrible, tragic thing happening in her life that she doesn't want to look at or pay attention to as much and wants that distraction from. So I think that was something that really stuck with me because she is a supporting character in a lot of ways. She's not a primary character, but at the same time, she's the one who catalyzes everything because she's the monarch. She's the one who's really in control of all of these people's lives in a very, very significant way. Like, I think they did a very smart thing in the series, which is that they completely ignore the fact that there is a regent. I wonder if they're going to bring him into the series later on as a character, because in Regency novels, he's usually, you know, a large character. Uh, they really made her a focus, which, I mean, it goes back to like several things that we've said already about like how the series uses people of color and how it centers them in the narrative. And it's always doing it in... Um, unexpected ways that sometimes it works really well and sometimes it doesn't and I think this one actually does work as I was saying. Yeah I completely agree. Mm -hmm. Simon is interesting in this episode because he decides to use his words in a very productive way which is kind of making up with Anthony. Their friendship is one of the 
things that is puzzling to me throughout the series. And he makes a doozy of a speech to the queen trying to convince to give them a license to hurry up their marriage. And it's pretty wonderful. What did you both think about Simon's queen's speech? You know, I think a lot of why Bridgerton works is because I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but Roger Jean Page's performance is like just right. He's very much how I would envision the lead of a romantic, uh, you know, Mm. sort of a romance novel, you know, especially a historical romance novel. He's just the right amount of sexy and earnest, but also sort of sardonic and all of those things. And I think in this speech, he really went to that place of like earnestness and um, a genuine kind of sweetness. So I bought it, but I also feel like I'm the sort of person, um, you know, I'll see a bug, you know, like a Burger King commercial on TV and I'd be like, I want a burger, even though I know their burgers aren't good or whatever. So I think I'm very gullible and susceptible to like any kind of like emotional manipulation. But I thought there was such a sweetness and earnestness to that scene, which, you know, is is a little bit at odds with how a lot of, uh, you know, Regency era, like uh, plays and uh, novels and things that were more sort of flippant worked but at the same time I enjoyed it as someone who loves you know an earnest uh, you know I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy type speech (laughs) so I definitely enjoyed it (laughs) I responded to it very strongly (laughs) I I feel like if I were the queen I would have been like forget Daphne you know (laughs) no I agree I think like this is like uh, as a Regency novel reader this is obviously like, like Sal says, like this is very against the times, like especially if I know like Sal reads a lot of Georgia Taylor novels as well. So if you grew up reading that sort of novel, you sort of have this idea of a restrained masculinity of these kinds of characters to which that speech is absolutely antithetical. Like nobody in a hair novel would ever say that. But Um, This is why it's always fascinating to me to see adaptations and like to see how source materials or source characters or stock characters are changed and adapted per modern expectations because you can always see what is being done to appeal more to a modern audience. And of course, for those of us who grew up watching, you know, the 90s, uh, rom-coms, the British rom-coms, you know, this Hugh Grant and you know, Rene Zellweger and all those movies. This is like, this is catnip, right? Like, this is perfect. Like he, and he's saying exactly the right things. It's not even just that he's saying things about how he loves her, but he talks about her as if she's his best friend and that, you know, he values her as a person, which is exactly the right note for the present moment. So, um, yeah, it's a great speech, and I like it. Does it work with internal logic? I don't, I'm not sure. But I, I, but also, like, I liked it enough that I didn't think about it before you brought it up, Beth. Yeah, I think it's also a very Shondaland thing to have those big speeches of either romantic declaration or like a list of recriminations, which is also a speech we get in the show. Um, You know, so you have these kind of memorable Shonda Rhimes show speeches, you know, pick me, choose me, you know, all of those things from Grey's Anatomy to Scandal to all of those shows. So this is very of a piece with the rest of her output. Oh, it's so nice. (laughs) 
Um, what's next? Oh, Penelope and her eavesdropping. Uh, she gets exactly what she deserves for putting ears to doors and finding out way more than she can handle about Marina and her designs on Colin. And Colin, uh, or in Marina, actually getting Colin to propose with basically no trouble whatsoever. Amrita, tell me, in your experience with romance novels, is this how entrapping a man for a girl in a bad situation typically goes? Well, it doesn't, we don't really see a lot of that in the classic uh, Regency novel. I think mainly because what Marina is doing right now is morally reprehensible. And generally speaking, when we are talking about a um, you know, a heroine in the Regency era novel. Uh, she tends to be more Daphne than Marina. So I would say mm-hmm. that Marina's tactics are definitely novel. Um, and again, like I've said before, like Marina as a character doesn't really exist in the books. So this entire thing about her and Colin and what she's doing right now to both him and to Penelope. All of that is like brand new and is invented for the show. Um, And I have to say, like, I wasn't really that upset with Marina doing the best that she can. I mean, would you rather, like there's a, well, in episode six, you know, there's a speech where she makes to Penelope that we'll talk about later. But um, would you rather marry somebody who looks like the Crypt Keeper or would you marry (laughs) Colin? I mean, I don't blame her for choosing Colin. Uh, and Colin is an idiot. Let's not, you know, let's not give him the benefit of the doubt. Like he is behaving in a way that makes no sense whatsoever. Um, he is young, but he is not that young. Like he's older than Daphne, but he behaves like an idiot throughout this entire process. Like. <laughs> He's literally like, let's kiss. And he's like, oh, no, like, that's too bad. Um, let's just get married instead. <laughs> and I'm just like, what are you doing? You're an idiot. It's not going to work out really well for Colin, is it? Let's talk about the art parties. It's fast times at Granville High, you know, like there's all sorts of people doing all sorts of things. Um, and every worst stereotype about bohemian artists, probably. Oh, my God. Yes. You know, I think I kept hoping for the show to get queerer. And like, I think that's the closest it got. So that was that was fun for me. You know, I was like, at least one of, uh, you know, the innumerable Bridgerton siblings um, got to have, you know, like a queer plotline, like a queer romantic plotline. And I thought this was going to be it. Uh, But instead, we got like this threesome moment and uh, we see a little bit of um, the the couturiers like sort of uh, extracurricular activities so that was interesting and it you know sort of comes into play to see her as more of a person later um, because you know we have we do have more questions about who she is as the show goes on Um, so that was it was fun for sure I think um, to depart from like the propriety of a lot of or well the Ariana Grande scored propriety of a lot of the other parties um I definitely I definitely enjoyed the little foray into you know sort of like that artistic kind of like uh 
world that we don't see as much on this show because it's very much, you know, the Otmond. And I think it was fun for me. I enjoyed it. I thought I thought it was, uh, as you said, it was very the sort of thing, like very kind of eyes wide shut light. Um, but uh, <laughs> I definitely enjoyed it, although I thought they could have gone even further. But maybe this is not the show uh, for, you know, going further uh, on that front. Uh, but who knows? Season two, perhaps. <laughs> I totally agree with with everything that you're saying and I think it's so important to to consider how this show might become more queer. Let's have more of that in the next seasons, especially because Benedict is one of the more interesting Bridgerton siblings as far as I'm concerned. And also just because it does let us see exactly what you said, more lives of more different kinds of people. And obviously these are all still rich or rich adjacent people but but still the idea of flattening out some of the social levels that are so important elsewhere in these kind of scenes is is really interesting and it opens up potential for conversations I think that happen in later episodes with with Benedict and the artist but it's still pretty great even though it's short so the thing that interests me about that entire thing is that uh there's a couple of things like one at this time in the United Kingdom you know, um, homosexuality or what they called sodomy back then uh, is actually a punishable offense, which is why, you know, uh, Granville later approaches Benedict to make sure that they're cool because if somebody reports him to the police then or to the authorities because they didn't really have a police system back then, um, then Granville is going to prison. So uh, it's a it's a real thing. Like he's playing with his reputation every time he chooses to be with the person that he loves, um, and he's forced to be in the closet, obviously. But he also is forced to like have a wife, and you know, um, we see a bit of that relationship down the road as well. And everything that is happening between Benedict and Granville, like you're right, like what Sal was saying about like how. Uh, she thought that it might be Benedict getting, uh, you know, a sort of mentor in the queer world of the Regency. That's basically what I thought would happen as well, because I'd heard rumors about how there was going to be a queer character. And it turned out to be Granville, but I thought it might be that they um, they change one of the Bridgerton siblings and, you know, uh, do something with it. And Benedict would have been like a really good choice for that, because I'm not a big fan of his plotline in the books, which has like really weird power dynamics, like his mm. um, his story. So if they wanted to change that up and make, you know, Benedict buy or something, like I would be here for it. And what's weird to me is that Shondaland is so good at addressing things like that. I mean, uh, they've had... Uh, really excellent portrayals of lesbian characters and of bi characters and gay characters on other shows such as Grey's Anatomy um, and Station 19. Well, who watches Station 19? I don't know. But like, you know, (laughs) other shows. Um, And so it's not like they don't know how to approach uh, queer relationships. So I don't know why they wouldn't just do that. I mean, they're just making so many changes anyway. I don't know why they couldn't just go all the way with that. I feel like they keep hinting at it because there's the bit with, you know, his romance with like that other sort of young Twinkie Lord person, uh, you know, Granville's romance. And then I feel like it's something that they keep hinting at in a way that feels consequential. 
So mm. I hope it pays off because I also don't think that the romantic plotline that we get for Benedict in this season is particularly compelling, even though it it mm. um, it ties into the overall plotline and sort of the overall the overarching kind of like question of who Lady Whistledown is and how you know she must continue to be able to write and so on. Um, I, I it's not particularly compelling on a chemistry front. And you know, with uh, with in those like brief moments we have with him looking at uh, Grenville and Grenville's lover and those things, there's a little bit more of a sort of frisson of like interest in chemistry. And I hope they explore that a little bit more. 100%. 100%. Speaking of things that are uh, not fully done, let's talk about Violet giving Daphne the worst sex advice ever. Um, <laughs> and as as Amrita has pointed out in our planning notes, this is a woman who's had, a, who's had eight children. So she knows something and she tells her daughter absolutely nothing. I do think that there's a nice companion piece to this conversation in a later episode that we'll get to. But for now, Violet has not prepared Daphne very well for anything with her husband. I mean, maybe a little bit as a duchess, although she bungles some of that too, as we'll see, but she's just, she's just completely unprepared. And it's, I mean, it's funny and it's also sad. Like what a, what a horrible thing to do to your daughter as you send her out into the world. And, and literally she's going off into the countryside into what's being filmed in Yorkshire. So she's not near home. She's not near anyone she knows. And she's stranded with just utterly unprepared what are both of your thoughts on sort of Daphne's readiness for her new position as a wife? I think it's especially sort of egregious because she knows of um, Simon's reputation. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a rake. He's, you know, he's a man of the world. Um, and, you know, as Amrita pointed out, you know, this woman's had a literal like litter of children. And, <laughs> You know, it feels like she she knows what to do. Clearly, she's she's been on that merry-go-round a few times. And, and she was happy about it. She talks frequently about how much she loved her husband, how much passion they had. She's actually someone with lots of relevant experience emotionally as well, and she just doesn't share it. I think that also, you know, can be traced back to the inconsistencies and in how um, Violet is written on the show. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we see her as this sort of powerful matriarch in some moments, and in other moments, we see her as someone really kind of uh, waffling in that role and not knowing how to assert herself or prepare her children or be in their corner in a way that's, you know, substantive and useful. Um, and I feel like that that points towards um, the writer is not necessarily knowing how to write this interesting older woman character in a way that's compelling. Because honestly, one of the big things about the show, it's called Bridgerton. And, you know, that family is sort of uh, the focus in a lot of ways. Um, they don't really, she's she's the, she's the linchpin of the family in a lot of ways, but they don't really figure out how to write her in a way that's compelling, even though the individual parts of a woman who has the rare, unusual marriage of passion, who loves her children, likes being around them, all of those individual bits are compelling. They don't quite come together Mm -hmm. uh, for the character throughout the show. And I think this is sort of a symptom of that as well. Yeah. I did love that she got to be drunk in this episode, at least. That was very funny. (laughs) 
while at being craft and giving her daughter advice, um, I mean, it's left to Simon to fix things, so to speak. And of course, Simon being Simon is not exactly the most thoughtful person in the world. And so he takes, um, he takes that, he ignores Daphne at their wedding and then takes her into the countryside and tells her they're going to be spending their wedding night at some random inn on the road to his far <laughs> off estate. Um, and Daphne is clearly not pleased about any of this. And she thinks Simon hates her, hates being married to her. And then he shows up and he's just like, I burn for you. And then, <laughs> of course, things are very different from what Daphne imagined. What I like about that particular scene is that they're both idiots. And then they both realize that they're being idiots. And then immediately they just have all this um, freedom to be with each other. In this episode, when we see their wedding night and we see, you know, Daphne and Simon um, basically make love for the first time, um, the camera chooses to focus on Daphne's experience um, of the whole thing. And of course, like Simon is beautiful, obviously, and we get to see a bit more of him, so to speak. <laughs> but he is clearly an accomplished lover and Daphne is super into it like you can see that she has found a brand new obsession as the camera pans to her face and she's just like all right this is what (laughs) (laughs) marriage it's great I would love never to have to hear again the dialogue from a man this is gonna hurt a little bit I feel like that is something that I have read over and over and over and over again in <laughs> historical romance that has like a virgin uh, lead, which is like pretty much every historical romance. It really doubles down on the an issue we spoke about before, which is that to keep someone ignorant is to keep power over them. And it, it just reinforces that. And I know that that is the experience of these characters, their life experiences to this point, but it's, I'm sure that the show wants us to understand it as what, as respectful or kindly or something, but I, it still kind of creeps me out. I will have things to say about that in the next episode. So. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anything else plot wise in episode five, we want to discuss. Cressida Cowper and Daphne have a, well, Cressida's, probably going to be there in the next season. Um, you know, she's she's sort of like seen as the big villain. But I find it like interesting that she and Daphne have all these asides and they're jockeying for position in society. And Cressida clearly feels that she has a certain power over Daphne. And Daphne is, you know, all this time we've been talking about like how Daphne is, um, you know, she's, sort of vulnerable and shy and she's really a shrinking violet and then you see her with Cressida and you kind of get a glimpse of the woman that she's going to be and she is going to be formidable and I don't think Cressida (laughs) is up for. I love Cressida and I love the fact that there's somebody sort of dangerous out there who is Daphne's peer and I mean slightly less now that she's a duchess but still um, because one of the things I think that this show flirts with but doesn't do as much with as I want is friendship. I don't think Daphne really has a friend, but at least she has a frenemy. 
um, who's obviously <laughs> converting into an enemy, but I'll take it because I like the conversations that happen within a generation of people. And while we know the Bridgerton siblings are all really close, Daphne doesn't really seem to have a useful confidant or anything within her siblings because her relationship with Eloise is a little bit more parental in a way. And I love that. I love that we kind of get that with Cressida. Let's talk about friendship a little bit in this show. We have Eloise and Penelope, who obviously have difficulties, but are friends. And we have Will and Simon, I think. And Anthony and Simon are supposed to be friends, but they're they're terrible friends to each other. <laughs> and yet we have this lovely speech about how being friends is so important to a successful marriage or a successful romance, I think, from the Queen and from Simon. What is the show telling us about friendship versus what is it showing us about friendship? I feel like this is something that, again, feels characteristic of uh, um, Shonda Rhimes' shows, where there's a little bit of a conflict between the big moment and, like, consistent character development or, uh, you know, the development of dynamics between characters, um, where the, sh- the show wants to have it, you know, the shows want to have it both ways, where they want to have those big explosive moments, but also allude to, you know, these deep wellsprings of affection and things between characters and go back to that, you know, when it's convenient. And I think um, the the relationship between Anthony and uh, Simon is very that, where, you know, the you don't really get a sense or a handle on that relationship. I don't think they but they have any particular friend chemistry, you know. I kept almost expecting them to say, oh, yeah, they used to, like, um, I don't know if I can swear, but they used to, you know, get it on and, you know, back in the day at <laughs> Harrow or Eton or whatever, you know, um, because I felt that it was a very kind of Harry Potter, Draco Malfoy kind of tension. Um, <laughs> I was like, I'd read some, you know, uh, slash like some fan fiction about uh, Anthony and Simon, but I don't know if they work as much as friends. But maybe that's also because Anthony is trying to become this alpha figure that Simon so effortlessly is. Mm. Um, And that might be some of that tension as well. Like, I think that role of being the guy, you know, the big man on campus comes very naturally to Simon. Not so much to Anthony, um, as we see in the early episodes, especially where, you know, I think I was not the only one who was confused as to why he seems to be like cock blocking every relationship, he, you know, that his sister has going on. You know, at some point you're like, ah, uh, this is creepy. And I think that's Anthony. Like, I think he's really sort of figuring out how to be like, you know, that guy, the patriarch, the big guy. And uh, the, you you do sense a little bit of a resentment of Simon to whom decisions come much easier often fatally but still that's such a good observation that they they complement each other in terms of what is easy for them what else anything else we want to talk about theme wise in this episode no i think like this episode is really about the wedding yeah (laughs) oh i have a question about the wedding since you both read these romances much more than i do is it common for there to be so few people at the wedding well, this is a, a special license wedding, so mm. they don't have, um, so, you know, it's just taking place. So special license weddings are, so there's like in historical romance novels, especially around this time period, you have your formal weddings, which are, you know, take weeks 
uh, or even months, you know, sometimes it's like a year or something to plan and it's grand and it's huge and there's like society weddings and it's written up everywhere and the bride gets a giant trousseau and everything. And then you have special license weddings, which are seen as um, slightly shady because it's like, why do you have all this rush? So mm-hmm. Uh, the way that they sell it in this particular story is that Daphne and Simon are so in love that they just have to get together, which is a discreet way of saying they really want to bone. So, you know, they can't wait. And so they have to get married, um, which is seen as very romantic in this time period. Um, and then, of course, the shadiest of all is something that we'll talk about in the next episode, which is uh, if you elope to Gretna Green. Uh, which sure. is a tiny village in Scotland and people mm-hmm. from down south would go up there. And so those are the three types of uh, weddings in England in historical romance. Well, with that hint at episode six, let's sign off for episode five. Amrita, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Amrita IQ or on YouTube at Amrita by the book. And I also co-host a Bollywood podcast called Khandan. And Sal, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sal and the Bad Pun. So that's <laughs> Sal and the Bad Pun. Um, and you can come listen to me spouting nonsense about all sorts of things. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's me. <laughs> and I'm Beth, and I'm at Beth Loves Bali on Twitter. Thank you both so much. And we'll see you again for episode six. Bye.